Well, if we're dead in our trespasses and sins, what we need more than anything else is a Savior. Now, the Bible says, by the way, that's exactly where we are apart from Christ. Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I, say, I, think, I think our biggest problem is we don't know what our biggest problem is. I mean, if, if, if we don't know the problem and the severity of it and the significance of it, then the solution won't seem as glorious as it truly is. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. We'll, we'll start there. We're not going to read every verse in the Bible, but we're just going to start there. Although every verse in the Bible ought to be read by you in your, in your lifetime. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. Uh, I'm always amazed when people are bored with the Scripture. Uh, it's the very words of life. Uh, it's what we need more than anything else. And yet we find that people seem to be entertained and engaged by a thousand other things other than the Bible. And one of the reasons I, th I think that's true is that we come at it from the wrong angle. Now, I think that the Bible is very relevant to today. I think it's the most up-to-date book on the planet. Uh, and as a preacher of the gospel, I do endeavor to, um, to make the Bible relevant to our lives. But a better thing to do is to make our lives relevant to the Scripture. Uh, we, we find ourselves living in a day where we want to take God's Word and fit it into our life. Now that's kind of insane. Uh, we ought better to humble ourselves and, and try to fit where our life goes with His Word. For, uh, for example... The great themes of the Bible don't really have a cultural parallel. The Bible and what it says is vitally important, it doesn't have a, a, a commonality sometimes in our day-to-day -day life. For example, over and over the Bible talks about King Jesus. We have no king in this country. We don't really even, from the way the Bible uses that word in our national history, we, we got rid of the king, remember? The constitutional monarch. I mean, he, he wasn't even really a king in the Bible since he's a constitutional monarch. And we didn't even want him. Bye-bye, King George, right? We fought the American Revolution. We, we don't want a king. We don't want somebody telling us what we should do. And we don't want someone who has all authority. But the Bible says he is king of kings and lord of lords. The Bible has a great theme of redemption. But in our culture, we don't, we don't have a... So, so if you just follow along with what I'm trying to get at, is if you want the Bible to come alive to you, Yes, it is fine to ask, how is this relevant to my life? But a better question to ask is, when I open up the... How is this relevant to God? Because the things we're going to talk about this morning are very much relevant to Him. What's important to Him? What does He say is vitally important? What does He say is of utmost significance? And then what He says about those things, then we need to make those things very relevant to our lives. Here's what Genesis 1-1 says. You know this verse, right? In the beginning... What's the next word? God. This is a book about Him. Now, it is a book about us, but it's primarily a book about how we interact with Him, how we can be uh, reconciled to Him. The Bible is about Him. And He fills this book up with what He says is important. Now, on the, on the other side, what's important for us is now we've got to come to Him. Doesn't this make sense? Isn't this more logical? We're little bitty creations. The creation humbles itself to the Creator and says, what's important to you? Make it known to, to me. It says, in the beginning, God. God made creation. It wasn't some gases billions and billions of years ago that kind of got together and accumulated and one thing led to another. I mean, even, even uh, the opposition to creation has got to kind of step into eternity and says it happened billions and billions and billions and billions and billions and billions 
and billions. And just so we're safe, let's tag on another billion. No, it says, in the beginning, God. This book's about Him. Now, let's go to the big problem. And it doesn't take long. Just go over two chapters. Genesis chapter 3. And look what happens. Now again, here's the really big problem that we have. It's not going to show up in the headlines. It's not going to make the New York Times tomorrow. It's not going to be on the CNN ticker. But the big problem is Genesis 3. After the fall, verse 8. Now look how relevant the Bible is to today. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. They fell. They did the one thing God said not to do. Don't eat from this tree. Now they have the knowledge of good and evil. They don't know what to do with the knowledge. They just know there's good and evil. And by the way, all of us are the same way. Do you know what is good to do? Yes. Do you do it? No. See, we, 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 we all have this understanding is that we ought to be better than we are, but we just can't seem to get there. From little things, I ought to eat better than I eat. But then when it comes time for supper, what do we want to do? What's the number for the pizza place and the cheesy bread and the soda pop and the dessert? Right? We, we know what we ought to do, we just don't do it. That's what Paul says in the book of Romans. Here's the law. Here, here, here's, here's what's going on inside me. The things I want to do, I do not do. And the things I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man that I am. See, Paul understood the problem. So when he writes his letter to the Romans, he doesn't fill it up with all this political speech and here's what we want the emperor to do and so on and so forth. He says, no, Matthew said it. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. We were dead in Adam. Here's Adam. Here he is. What's he doing? Here, here's the problem. They thought they could rebel against God and then live independent of him. And God's just going to say, I'm not going to let you do that. You're my creation and you don't get to just cut ties with me. I made you. But they, they're trying to hide themselves. And people have been trying to hide from God ever since. They've camouflaged themselves. They're, they're trying to hide. Isn't that foolish? To hide from somebody who sees all things? To try to pull one over on someone who knows all things? But that's what they're doing. The, at, at the sound of him, just the sound of him, he's coming near. Now, here's the reality for us this morning. The sound of him, the, his word, it either draws people in or they run for their lives. <laughs> they don't want anything to do with it. So he, the sound of him comes in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, Where are you? And that is still the most relevant question on the planet this morning. Is this, God asking you, and this isn't a sermon for somebody else, this is a word of God for you. Where are you? Where are you? Now, did God not know where he was? Of course God knew where he was. Here's the problem. Adam didn't know. Now, Adam knows there's some ramifications, but he, he has no idea what he's done. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid. So he still got a little bit of sense because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, he's afraid, but he's afraid for the wrong reason. He thinks the problem is that he's naked on the outside. The problem's not that he's naked on the outside. The problem is he's dead on the inside. And still to this very day, here's what people say. The big problem is out here on the exterior. Now, they, they did something that we find very silly. They, they made fig leaves and covered themselves. Say, that's so foolish. But people are still doing that. We just don't use fig leaves. We use all sorts of other things. Trying to, trying to alter the outside. If I just get some more stuff, or if I just 
do this or do that and make the way I look change or the way that all, all this stuff on the outside. And that's why Adam says, I'm afraid I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And the man's going to say some words that most wives in attendance will find familiar. Maybe not, maybe not. The man said, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. See? It's just, like to, it's just as relevant today as it's ever been. He, God confronts him with what he's done and what's he do? He points the finger at somebody else. He says, it's the wife, that woman that you gave me, God. I mean, it's your idea, this whole man and woman, I'll leave, she'll leave, we'll cleave, we'll be, what, what was it? Hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one. And then the Bible says they were naked and unashamed. And then the fall works it all the way back. Now they're naked and ashamed. Now they're not the two become one. Now they're back to being two. Now he's not holding fast to her. In fact, he's shoving her in front of God and saying it's, it's her fault. Now it's the blame game. First of all, we've got to change the outside, and then when that didn't fix anything, we're just going to blame somebody else. Who told you you were naked? I, uh, it's her fault. Now, husbands, if you find yourself in your season of your life where you're blaming all of the issues on your life on your wife, red flag, it's not her. It's you. Wife. Wives, if you find yourself in a season of your life where you're blaming all your issues on him or on the children, or on somebody else. It's not them. It's you. They did this. Now, here's the age-old story of man. We want to throw off the law of the harvest that we reap what we sow. And Paul will be inspired by the Holy Spirit and say, God's not mocked. Whatever a man sows that he will reap. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, She's no better. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And it goes on and on and on. Uh, now, right here, let's get some good news. In Genesis chapter 2, excuse me, chapter 3, verse 15. We're to get the good news, but here, here, let's get the setup. Here's three things that Adam's lost in the fall. Talk about the fall, what's he lost? Number one, he's lost his Lord and now he's depraved. Number two, he's lost his light, and now he's darkened. And number three, he's lost his life, and now he's dead. That's who Adam is now. He's depraved, he's darkened, and he's dead. And he and Eve are going to have children, and guess what they're going to be? Dead, depraved, and darkened. But here's God stepping in, and he says, I'm going to intervene, and he gives this little bitty word, but it's a hugely important word. In fact, the rest of Scripture is going to roll out of this. Genesis 3, verse, 10, uh, verse 15, 315, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, he's talking to the serpent. And between your offspring and her offspring. So right there, we got two lines going from here on out. The line of the serpent and the line of, of this messianic prophecy, the one who is to come. Adam is a man who forsook God. He legally lost his dominion. Remember, God gave him dominion. And Adam forsook God and handed his dominion over to Satan. That's why the Bible calls him the prince of this world. So God, being righteous and just and holy, doesn't do what some of us think we should do. Just, just hit the reset button. Right? Ever play a video game when you're growing up? Some of you have already answered no, but... If something goes wrong, you just hit reset. 
God's not going to do that. He said, if a, if a man legally lost the dominion, well, a man's going to have to legally reclaim the dominion. And that's what he's getting at right here. He, he says, from this woman, her seed, her offspring, now notice what he says about it. He shall bruise your head and, shall, and you shall bruise his heel. Everybody say enmity. Enmity. That's what he said. I'm going to put enmity between uh, Satan's offspring and the woman's offspring. And how long does this take to show up? Have you read Genesis 4? They have two boys. Cain and Abel. You want to talk about enmity. Cain rises up and murders his brother. Now the woman, she may not have understood the full ramifications of this prophecy. I can guarantee you the serpent did. And the rest of the Old Testament, here's what's going to happen. Genesis 4, Cain murdering Abel. A few chapters later, violence on the whole planet. In fact, it gets so bad that God says, I, I repent that I even made these people. And he sends a flood and one little bitty ark is preserved with Noah and his family. Who's Noah and his family? It's the woman's offspring. And then a little bit longer, here's going to be Abraham. Who's Abraham? The father of the faith. And you, sh you follow this strand all the way. Now, this is what I mean by talking about what's relevant to God uh, needs to be relevant to us. Because for the rest of the Old Testament, enmity and the preservation of the seed. No matter what Bible story you open up to, that's pretty much the theme. You talk about Moses. Enmity, throw those boys in the Nile River. Preservation, his mom puts them in a little basket. Enmity, over and over and over again. The people of God forsake him again, and he sends them into the Babylonian captivity. Enmity. Daniel and these boys, you don't bow down to what I tell you to bow down to. We'll either throw you in the fire or throw you in the lion's den. And over and over and over, whenever the seed of the woman is threatened, God shows up and miraculously preserves it. Over and over and over. And then, you ready for the good news? There has been born for you this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the incarnation of the Word of God. God's not going to uh, leave it up to somebody else. He's going to take care of this personally. And you remember the enmity that arrived when he was born. That wicked King Herod went to that city and murdered all of those boys except for Jesus. And here's the sovereignty of God. You can't overcome Him. The very enmity that's in existence leads Jesus to go to the cross and be crucified. And oh, by the way, that was the whole point of it all anyway. So that when we get, now, all that's background to Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. If the gospel's going to be any solution, it's got to address the problem. Right? If you called 911 because your house is on fire and the fire department showed up and they all ran out with a picnic basket and made a picnic on your front lawn and said, we came to feed you, you say, well, what? that's not what I called you for. If the fire department shows up, you want them to bring what? You want them to bring water. Now the problem is depravity, death, separation from Christ, or separation from God. Now, what's the solution? That's Colossians chapter 2, verse number Let's start with verse 8. See to it, Paul says, that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit. Oh, by the way, 
that there's, there's the danger. The danger is this empty deceit and this philosophy will lead you away from understanding the real problem. Now, if you want empty deceit or philosophy, here's what you do. You go home, you take your TV remote, point it at it, and click power, and here it comes. All the empty deceit, all the worldly philosophy. Paul says, see to it that no one takes you captive by it. So you be careful what you give your mind over to. So he says, according to the elemental spirits of this world, uh, excuse me, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Here's why Paul says, man, you go after that empty stuff, here's what you'll miss. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. And you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now pay careful attention to, to this. Remember, here's the problems. We're depraved, we're dead, we're darkened. We understand that. Depraved, dead, darkened. Now, read this. Having been buried with Christ in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This He set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. So let's take a moment and talk about the solution Solution number one, we were dead. Here's gospel good news. What did Paul just say? He's made us alive together with him. What does it mean to be spiritually dead? To be spiritually dead means that you have absolutely no sensitivity to holy things. Now, you might be interested in a thousand things. Shopping, the NBA playoffs, Facebook. I already said shopping. I don't know why that came to my mind again. Uh, 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 your job, your family, just the list goes on and on and on and on. But you will have no desire for God. In, in fact, it'll seem to you almost as if He does not exist. You're dead to Him. It's not an issue that we're sick. He says that we're spiritually dead. And that happened at the fall, and every man born after Adam is born spiritually dead, which is, oh, by the way, why it says the Messiah was born of a virgin. She's, Jesus is not born of Adam. He's the second Adam. He's, he's born by the Holy Spirit conceiving in the Virgin Mary. Now, a dead person does not need out, outward alterations. You can spend all day trying to dress it up and put on some makeup. What does a dead person need? A dead person needs life. A person without Jesus is not sick. He's dead. I just want to say this as clearly as I know how. Spiritually deadness means you have absolutely no sensitivity to spiritual things, no appetite for holy things, no desire for God, and you don't even know it or care about it. Now look what he says in verse, in verse 12. This problem is so severe. Notice what it takes. Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Our condition is so severe, it, it, 
It needs the powerful working of God. Anybody here experienced the powerful working of God raising you from spiritual death to spiritual life? If that's happened in your life, you don't think, I don't know if that's happened or not. Any more than Lazarus walks out of that tomb and says, I don't know if I just came to life or not. Now the powerful working of God, in the beginning God, if He's raised you from death to life, the inner testimony of His Spirit living in, in, inside you resounds louder than anything else on the planet. We were dead. Now we are alive. Not only do we have spiritual death, but we've got a whole lot of spiritual debt. D-E-B-T. Did I spell that right? Spiritual death. Now we got spiritual debt. Did you notice what he said? All our trespasses. Now here's the other big problem that we have is we're not as good as we think that we are. That's part of being spiritually dead. Part of being spiritually dead is you have absolutely no comprehension of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, and the justice of God that we actually start to think, you know what, we're not all that bad. I mean, I got my tie on this morning. I got my suit. I mean, I'm trying to live a nice life. I'm trying to live a... And we have no understanding. Now, have you noticed this in the Bible? Every time God makes himself known to a man or a woman, they just about die. Have you noticed this? You remember Isaiah? Isaiah is the most righteous man of his generation. And then in Isaiah 6, the Bible says that God came to the temple. And here's what Isaiah said. Woe is me. Woe is me. We don't really understand how wretched we are until we get a real clear understanding of how unwretched God is. We don't understand how sinful we are until we get a real clear picture of how sinless he is. Because we're capable of sinning, and it's not really that big of a deal. Ever happened this? Ever had this happen? You have a lustful thought, or an angry thought, or say something, or do something you ought not to do, and then in a, few, in a little bit, you're over it. God does not get over it. Not because he's nitpicky, but because he's perfectly holy. That's what holiness means. And so, so when Adam sins against him, he doesn't just show up and say, well, all right, old boy. Wife pulled one over on you. No big deal. Just try harder. That's not the message of the Bible. Although that's the message that a lot of people live by. It's not about trying harder. It's about understanding I'm spiritually dead and now I have a spiritual debt to pay. We are in debt because of our sins. Heaven has sued us for damages and we're guilty before God. Notice verse 14. It says, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us, this is an important phrase, with its legal demands. Now those uh, Colossians in that day when Paul wrote this letter, they, they fully understood what he's talking about. Here's, here's how it went down way back then. When you were guilty before the judge, they actually got a certificate of debt. I don't have one, but you just pretend this is it. And they wrote, they wrote on it. They, they handed this over to the judge. Here's your certificate of debt. Okay, uh, uh, you're going to go to jail, you're going to go to prison for this number of many years, or this, that, or the other, and here's why. And, uh, uh, you did this, you stole, you killed, you cheated, you lied, you did whatever. And, and it's just a real clear certificate of debt. Uh, and, and then what they would do is when they put you in prison, they'd take that certificate of debt and they'd nail it up above the door so that everybody goes by this and says, well, here's so-and-so and here's what they did and here's how much longer they have to pay. Do you remember when Jesus was crucified? What did they do? They took a sign and they nailed it on top of the cross saying he is the king of the Jews. And the, and the Jewish rulers got all worked up and all and said, no, no, take that sign down. Say he claimed to be the king of the Jews. 
And Pilate said, well, I've already written it and keep it up there. Why did they put it up there? So that everybody who walks by said, here's what his, his crime is. Now, it was not a crime. He was the king of the Jews. He is the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Uh, and so, so uh, once the penalty was paid, they take the debt of certificate, hand it back over to the judge. The judge would read and say, okay, here's what we said, and you've paid the penalty. Now you're free to go. You're not getting out until you've suffered the, the, the just penalty. Now you look again at what Paul said. He canceled our debt. Not just because he's nice about it. Right. Not just because he says, oh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a forgiving God, I'm going to cancel the debt. Notice what he says. He canceled the debt with its legal demands. These he set aside. Certificate of debt. Where did he put it? Nailing it to the cross. Do we understand? That's what the cross is. God is not a judge who loses the paperwork and says, shh, we won't tell anybody. He says, there's some legal demands. The soul that sins, it shall surely die. That's what he said. Now, what Paul's saying is, Jesus took the certificate of debt and he says, I'm going to take it. Now, here's what they deserve. The people who are guilty, they deserve to suffer for this. Jesus' name's not on the certificate. He, he's sinless. He's, he's never done anything. But he says, I'm going to take it and I'm going to offer my life a ransom for many so that Paul can write to the Romans, he's become the propitiation for our sins. What's that mean? Propitiation is a word that just means he's taken the penalty on himself. It's not that God canceled the penalty. It's that God put the penalty on somebody else. It's called substitutionary atonement. We have been bought by the blood of Christ. So that now we go to the judge. It's not that he didn't set aside. The, he, he, didn't, he didn't just tear this up and throw it away. There's still a certificate. And then when you stand before the judge, they're going to bring the certificate out. And here's the only hope we have. Here's the gospel truth. When the certificate of debt comes up, written in the blood of Jesus is paid in full. Actually, that's what they would do back then. Go with me to John chapter 19. I want you to see something just with your own eyes. Man, the one thing about uh, the Romans back then, they kept excellent records. All right, there's no smudging the figures. And so when a certificate of, date, uh, of debt was paid, they'd bring it back to the clerk and the clerk would write a phrase on the certificate. And the phrase in the language of that day was tetelestai. It just literally means paid in full. Now, in John chapter 19, verse 30, it's Jesus on the cross. It says, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now that phrase that Jesus uses, and many of you have heard this is literally, Jesus said, tetelestai, paid in full. And what's he talking about? What's been paid in full? Our certificate of, of debt. So again, Paul can say to the Romans, God Almighty is just, what does that mean? He's not throwing away the certificate, and justifier of, here's it specifically, the one who has faith in Jesus. Paid in full. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that's what the certificate says. Tetelestai, paid in full. No condemnation, therefore, for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law, the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. You don't have to worry that somebody somewhere up in the heavens has a paper and they're going to bring it out. When Jesus said, it is finished, you know what happened? 
he crushed the head of the serpent, just like God said was going to happen way back in Genesis chapter 3 in verse number 15. So number one, spiritual death. Number two, spiritual debt. And we got a third issue we got to deal with that Paul does, and that's the issue of spiritual dominion. Here's what he says in verse number, oh, back over to Colossians chapter 2. Y'all hang with me. This is going to be well worth it. Colossians 2, verse 15. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. We've got to deal with this issue of satanic dominion. That's what he's talking about here. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. So believer, if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, the devil has been disarmed. He has no influence. He has no power. He has no authority over you. Now, here's what you've got to know. Although he's been disarmed, he still deceives. He's like, a, he's like a mugger who will come up to you like this. Don't make me get this gun out of my jacket. Don't let me make me get this gun. Do this, do this, do this. Now, here's what Paul is saying. There's no gun in the jacket. He's been disarmed. He'll still come and try to deceive you, but here you know this on the authority of the Word of God because of the cross of Jesus Christ. He has no dominion over you anymore. The only dominion He has in your life to make you a slave to sin, to make you succumb to temptation, to make you still struggle with all those things you've struggled with, the only authority He has is the authority that you have handed over to Him. And Jesus came to give it back that he has no dominion over. This, this phrase here, he, he put them to open shame, is in reference to what they would do uh, in those days in the Roman army when, uh, when someone who was in charge, say a general, uh, uh, was shown to have no more authority for whatever reason. Maybe he made a mistake in battle. Maybe he, actually what usually happened is he was defeated in battle. The way the Romans uh, kept such good leadership is if you lost, you were gone. And they, they'd make you stand before the army. And then someone with more authority would come on and you'd have these uh, medals and these jewels on your uh, uh, whatever they wore back then. <laughs> and that general would come on and he'd put his hands on the, uh, the medals and he'd rip them off. And then that general would stand there in open shame. Now you listen to what Paul's saying is because of the cross, that's what Jesus has done to the serpent. That serpent who was more crafty than any beast of the field, listen to it, more crafty than any beast of the field, but not more powerful than God Almighty. And Jesus Christ came, paying our debt, defeating the enemy, and then he put him to open shame. So in conclusion, the question is, do you believe this? This is what is vitally important to God. This is what this whole book is about. Believers, remember all that God has done for us in Christ Jesus. Let's stand together. I have one last word before a time of invitation and a time of response. briefly for those of you who are not believers in Jesus Christ. The Bible says you are dead in your trespasses and sins. 
So the best thing that can happen is to accurately answer the question that God asked Adam, where are you? Now again, the world we live in wants to make that question seem insignificant. I'm not going to worry about that. I'll worry about that tomorrow. God says you need to worry about it today. And if you are apart from Christ, He says, whosoever will may come. You have spiritual death. You have spiritual debt. And you have satanic dominion over your life. But those who have faith in Christ overcome Him. I invite you to respond to the Lord's invitation. Call on the name of the Lord, church, and what does He say? You shall be saved. Repent of your sins. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to stand where we're already standing, and we're going to sing together. And here's the invitation. Those of you who do not know Christ, to respond. Now, this isn't the only way to respond to the gospel, but it's a pretty good way. I'm going to stand right here at the front. If you'd say, the Holy Spirit of the living God has revealed to me. Now, remember, here's the confidence I have when I give an invitation. It's the powerful working of God. It's not manipulated. It's not uh, counterfeited. We couldn't do this. If the living God has awakened you to your need of Christ. I'll stand here, invite you to come down, and we'll talk together, pray together. Father, invitation of salvation is open for those who are gathered today. I pray, Father, for the believers that are among us, those who've already heard this and trusted it, that in Jesus' name, this won't be old hat to them. This will be their very life. The powerful working of God the gospel of our salvation, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still weak, at just the right time, Christ offered salvation. Father, help us to understand there is salvation in no other. There is no one else who can fulfill the legal demands of a righteous, just God against sin. So those who are among us who are still dead in their trespasses and sins, Father, I pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit and by the clear word of God, reveal to them where they are, and also draw them to yourself so that they would know where they could be. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen.